Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Mikhail Sukowski, who is Professor of Physics and Biophysics at the University of Michigan. His group focuses on trying to understand mechanisms of the formation of patterns in coupled dynamical systems, with a special focus on their applicability and role during information processing in the brain. Welcome, Mikhail. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So this is a, uh, a subject of great fascination for me, even though I know nothing about it. Um, it's always interesting to think about how the brain does stuff. Um, and uh, it looks like we are progressing very, very slowly. <laughs> still, still a uh, lot, uh, lot to be learned, I guess. So, so I want to go back one of your earlier papers from 2013, a dynamical role of acetylcholine, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in synaptic renormalization. Um, you say although sleep is a fundamental behavior observed in virtually all animal species, its functions remain unclear. One leading proposal known as the synaptic renormalization hypothesis suggests that sleep is necessary to counteract a global strengthening of synapses that occurs during wakefulness. So that, that makes sort of a lot of intuitive sense. Um, I do some work in AI, Mikhail, and um, we let our computers actually sleep, um, and, and we, we put them to work, actually, when they sleep at night, uh, learning, learning something that they could learn from the data. And I would imagine comp- uh, our brains are doing the, doing the same thing, but this is more about sort of reinforcing uh, what we learn during the daytime, right? Is that is that how it works? Yes. So uh, it's actually a funny story. It was one of uh, uh, of my collaborators and I first uh, forged into the uh, science of sleep and trying to understand what happens during sleep. And we were very proud of ourselves that we were able to kind of put it on a mathematical or dynamical basis. But then, of course, we talked to my to my collaborator, you know, in 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 neuroscience, uh, uh, Sarah Eaton, and she said, "Oh no, no, you got it all wrong." Um, 
And th this is the story of our lives, I think, story of the Taoists trying to make sense of the word, of the how the brain works, and then experimentalists coming them and saying, oh, but it's not as simple as you think it is. So, yes, it, it, it uh, you know, there's uh, this, this underlying hypothesis, essentially, that was put forward for, um, by a very prominent group that, uh, you know, what happens during the day, we, we form new connections. When we learn, for example, right now we are interacting, I already, you know, I'm coding how you look, seeing you first time. And uh, essentially, my brain, you know, or my hippocampus is working very hard trying to, to gather this information. And we know we are relatively certain it happens through strengthening of the connections between neurons. So some of set of my neurons is now very active and the connections between those neurons are being strengthened. Of course, also weakened, but predominantly strengthened. So, of course, the problem is, you know, I go through my day and, uh, you know, I meet you, I meet other people, I participate in other events and uh, you know that's what my brain does it starts desperately to remember something by changing the connectivity and you know, strengthening those connections but of course it cannot go forever yeah i mean that, that cannot work like this because at some point it will just saturate you will saturate those connections or even not saturate but you know can lead to some bursts of activity epilepsy whatever yeah so at some point the, the theory was that uh, what brain needs to do at some point, it needs to do a couple of things. Yeah, it needs to kind of scale back those connections. Yeah, in essence, to be ready for the next day. Yeah, to start over. You know, our lives is, are long, at least longer than one day. Yeah, so the next day we, we need to start over, be able to strengthen those connections again, uh, and store the information. And uh, so the idea here is, the, and that's the, uh, the synaptic strength and normalization. That what happens predominantly during sleep, the connections get weakened. Yeah, so somehow this uh, information from dur from during the day gets uh, passed on to other maybe brain modalities and hippocampus because the hippocampus is primarily involved in this fast storage this in immediate storage of information as as we uh, as we get it during the day can kind of take a step back scale down the connections and uh, then start over the next day it seems like that that you know from what what I learned since since then that the story is much more complicated than that <laughs> reality, and uh, and uh, uh, you know th there are there is some proof that this renormalization does take place that this weakening does take place, but there's uh, many more things that happen during sleep with this you know more termed now uh, memory consolidation. Yeah, so it's not that just this connection gets weakened, but the memory traces that we store during the, um, you know, the active waking, yeah, are 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 being enlarged, uh, reinterpreted, and then passed on to to, to 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 cortex to different modalities. So it's way more complicated than just just the normalization of uh, synapses. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So during the day, we are taking a lot of information. The brain is very active. We are also taking a lot of noise that may not have a lot of value for the future. And so am I correct in thinking, uh, Mikhail, that the brain is going through some sort of a prioritization process? It's sort of, you know, uh, fleshing out noise information that's not that useful, taking information that might be useful for the future and consolidating that. Is that the right way to think about it? That's a great question. And you know, the, the simplest answer would be, I wish I had an answer. Um, but, uh, you, you know, the problem with, with noise is 
we don't know whether the information that's coming in is noise until sometime in future when it becomes irrelevant or based on our past experiences. So in theory, yes, you're completely right. Yeah, it seems like that that's what the brain does. So somehow the information that's being uh, taken up is probably being compared with the past experiences and based on the past experiences, some facts are deemed more important and being stored and some facts are being deemed less important and maybe forgotten or those facts are initially also stored but because of the lack of access to those facts during some period of time they will be forgotten yeah the the the, the, the neural space of processing will be taken up by the facts that are more readily visited by by our brains yeah yeah i um I think there's some gameplay involved, Mikhail. So I've seen some mouse models where, where when the mouse is sleeping, it's sort of rehashing yes. uh, the maze run or whatever it was doing in the yes. during daytime. Yes. So is there some sort of gameplay going on in the brain as well, so, uh, sort of replaying, re-simulating what might have happened in the morning? Yes, so that's actually, that's, that's how it's exactly called. This is this, this replay, the re replay of activity. Uh, we believe that uh, it's, it's uh, even, uh, it, it's extremely important in exactly the memory consolidation. So yes, the animal is rehashing what happened and maybe even generalizing what happened uh, to the experiences it had before. Yeah, so it's it, it's not, not, not just re re rehashing what happened in kind of empty space of that day or every, uh, you know, uh, uh, away from from the context, but it's contextualizing with the previous information, you know, previously stored information. Yeah, but yes, exactly. This is this was uh, discovered by Matt Wilson many years ago. That exactly this is this replay happens, and uh, is uh, this replay is extremely important for memory consolidation. So, uh, enlarging the memory traces or enlarging the engrams, recruiting new cells into the memory. And uh, and passing it on. In some way, you know, I I, I hope the the true neuroscientists will, will, you know, I'm still being a theoretician here, are are not going to cringe. But the way I see it, you know, the the brain is bombarded with the with huge amount of information, yeah, and there is no way it can store all of the context as it goes on, yeah. I mean, if you ask me right now, what word did you say three minutes ago? I, I just don't know. You know, I know I'm talking with you. I know that uh, that uh, uh, we are having a podcast, and uh, you know, I remember that, but I cannot remember every, uh, every every detail and even some of the important details. Yeah, and uh, so brain is grabbing onto whatever it can as it goes on because you know. Another issue is that, you know, for example, mice, when they run maze, usually they're exposed to those maze, mazes thousands of times or hundreds of times or at least tens of times. Yeah, maybe I exaggerated with thousands of times. But, uh, you know, that's not real life. Yeah, In real life, you're not going to repeat a sentence you said five minutes ago again. Yeah, Th this is it. Or I got it or I did not get it. Yeah. And uh, essentially, so the brain has to grab to whatever it can, but later offline, it can try to contextualize this information yeah, and kind of go back, try to understand exactly how you kind of uh, 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 portrayed it before, you know, kind of replay it, see what is noise, what is not noise, what, what is the, you know, what, what, are, what are the most important features stored, you know, uh, compared to other memories, but get rid of the other features. Yeah, and that that's this on 
offline consolidation, which we think happens during sleep. So this renormalization process you talk about, um, that is not related to dreams, is it? Yeah, no. I mean, I'm sorry, maybe I should say, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> at least we don't think about it. I, I, I was just actually reading a very interesting book about um, dreaming brains. Yeah, but, but you know, it, it's very hard to understand how the dreams really uh, interface with it. For sure, they do in somehow. So, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that, you know, reactivation of memories, you know, we, we know that during the reactivation of memories, the brain acts like it's reliving the memories. So it makes perfect sense that the dream would be a part of it. But whether it is and why sometimes dreams are nightmares and some, why they're as strange as they are, it, it's very, it, it's way beyond what I could even try to answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh... I love to speculate, you know, the dreams could be a sideshow. The brain should be, mm -hmm. brain could be saying, go watch Netflix while I do my work. So yeah. that, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you don't wake up or something no, like it, that. It um, could be a, a sideshow or it could be really, you know, it can be crucial because it makes perfect sense that, you know, if you try to assimilate new memories and, and, and kind of confront them with the old memories, you're just looking at some, you know, neural correlation space and, you, you let your mind wander, and that's exactly maybe what dreams are, letting the brain wander and find correlations that are, that are uh, you know, maybe doesn't make sense in the real world, but in, in the space of neural connections, maybe they, they do make some sense. Yeah, so um, I want to get into a little bit of details of this, um, Mikhail. So, um, so you say uh, we show in silico that uh, cholinergically induced changes in network firing patterns alter overall network synaptic potentiation when synaptic strengths evolve through spike timing dependent plasticity mechanisms. So some of this terminology is uh, becoming analogous to deep learning networks uh, <laughs> in many ways. Um, and so, so, so can you give some color on what exactly you, uh, not exactly, but what you think is happening from a mechanistic perspective uh, in the brain? Sure. So, so you know, there is this uh, very important, in terms of, it's extremely important neuromodulator, which is called acetacholin. Uh, and uh, there are, of course, many different neuromodulators in the brain, but uh, here we're going to concentrate on, on what it does. It changes the acetacholin release during different phases of behavior is very different. So for example, during waking, uh, there is a lot of acetylcholine being released in, 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 into the brain tissue. Yeah? During uh, uh, you know, uh, REM phase of sleep, also there is a lot of acetylcholine. But during non-REM phase of sleep, the levels of acetylcholine plummets. Yeah, so, and this is very stereotypical. It happens you know, across actually animal species and animal uh, animal feel it, it, it happens. Uh, it, it happens in humans. It happens every night. Yeah, and it turns out, you know. So of co of course, you know, neuroscientists study acetylcholine for 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 a long time. But what we look at it uh, at it is what it does to individual neurons. What this chemical, how this chemical changes the response of individual neurons to incoming input. Yeah, because. You know, generally we cannot look at that neuron in, in individual neurons in separation. Yeah, we have to look at them as networks. So, what 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 
neurons from simplest point of view does is just uh, it uh, it integrates information from coming from a lot of other cells yeah and it turns out that when the levels of acetylcholine change the response of the neurons to the incoming stimulation changes so you know from from my point of view i'll just call it dynamics so dynamics of the neurons changes as it listens to the information that's coming in so now and and you know this was the the models of the response of the neuron were created so mathematically it's pretty well understood what changes in response of the neuron when acetylcholine is high level of acetylcholine is high and when the level of acetylcholine is low but now it turns out that because the neuron changes its response yeah the whole network changes its dynamics yeah because again the neuron is, doesn't do things in in, in you know in, as individual neuron it's connected to thousands of other neurons so it sends diff different information to other cells and those cells respond differently to the to this information and so on and so forth yeah so it turns out that the dynamics of the whole network changes yeah so the by dynamics i mean spatiotemporal patterns of spike activity which we would normally see in the network they completely change from wake to sleep and now it turns out you know on the other hand we know through 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 you know this was actually postulated by HEP in 1950s that the whether the neurons strengthen or weaken connection or whether they how they connect really depends on their activity so now of course if the neurons change their activity patterns they also change their connections between them so you can you can start thinking that what happens uh, is uh, during the wake and during the sleep differentially that the neurons are forming different networks yeah those networks are being rewired reorganized during wake and during sleep and this is exactly what we look at what we look in this uh, this series of papers is how brain changes really changes in terms of wiring yeah when this there is a stimulus that comes during waking and how it how it responds when there is stimulus that comes during sleep under uh, or there's maybe no stimulus because the brain is sleeping but coming from different parts of the brain yeah so essentially how this dynamic changes and we found that exactly during waking the dynamics of the network due to those changes of dynamics of individual cells is is, is prone to strengthening the connections Whereas during sleep, we observe that uh, statistically those connections would get weakened. So it's all, all, all based on, in sense of mathematics of the response of an individual cell in the context of network. So it, it is, a, is it a question of capacity, Mikhail? So, so it, during daytime, a packet of information comes in, and just like we uh, we, we uh, train our deep learning neural networks, we have weights uh, on those neurons. That packet essentially has goes through the whole network, creates some effect on that network. Uh, and during sleep, um, you're sort of going back. Uh, so am I understanding this renormalization process? Sort of uh, setting setting it back to sort of baseline if if information is not that valuable? Is that the way to think about it or no? Maybe it's better to think about it as, as more as creating an environment for the networks, uh, you know, during sleep to rehash the information. Yeah. So 
you, you know, again, during the day, you know, our, our our brain is bombarded by the external stimulus, whether this is auditory stimulus, visual stimulus, you know, sensory stimulus. A lot uh, information comes from external sources, generally. Yeah, and 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 you know, the, the the memory, the dynamics of the brain is driven by the input. During sleep, it of course changes. Yeah, because we are sleeping, there's no input. Yeah, so now we, we this what brain has to do or the networks have to do, they have to rehash of what is stored during the day on their own, yeah? So what, this, what we think this change of acetylcholine generally does, it, it prepares network better or allows network to better rehash the activity of the day. So it's not, not just forgetting, but uh, you know, it's actually storing, it's actually enhancing some aspects of this information or, or, or getting rid of some other aspects. So, so I want to go into one of your recent papers on memory. I guess it's sort of connected, right? So critical dynamics mediate learning of new distributed memory representations in neural networks. Uh, you see the explore the possible role of network dynamics near a critical point in the storage of new information in silico and in vivo ensure that learning and memory may rely on neuronal network features mediated by the vicinity of criticality. So we'll, we'll go into criticality uh, uh, in more detail, but um, is it, so connecting back to the, the paper that we were talking about, this is sort of a memorization process too, right? That that the brain is going through at night? Yes, yeah, and, and, and th this is maybe more contextualization, contextualization so the question is, is, is kind of kind of fun question you know we, we as scientists you know look at that network capacity and we try to estimate how much memories the network can store and uh, and things like that but but here's a, sim a simple problem you, you know the brain again doesn't learn in isolation yeah we, we we already have you know in my case 50 years of stored experiences you know in the brain and now, now comes new experiences. My conversation with you, yeah. And and the question is, you know, essentially my my neural resources are taken by 50 years of memories, yeah. So this new memory essentially, in some ways, has to compete for a neural resources. Yeah, it it, it has to find its space somewhere in my head to be stored, yeah. And and it turns out that's not a trivial question at all, yeah, because I mean. It's, you know, if this, if, if the information is driven by the by the our uh, daily experiences, yeah, but in essence, it turns out that that the question whether it can be stored in the connectivity space is not trivial at all, and this is exactly what we investigated, and we find that, and and, and this actually answers answers or attempts to answer maybe it's a better way of putting it. Another more broad question is. Uh, in in what phase of general very very broadly understood phase of dynamics have to has to brain be to be able to maximize its, its, its informational intake yeah and this is where this criticality which which you mentioned comes on so what what we show in this paper was actually kind of very kind of cute result is that actually when brain is near this critical point by critical point I mean it, it, it's it's a point uh, um, 
at the phase transition. Yeah, at, at, at the phase transition. So now we can we can talk about what we think what what we think the phase transition is in the brain. But when the brain is at the phase transition, it actually can store the most information, or this information has the easiest way of getting in and being contextualized in terms of the, all the information that that's being stored. When the brain is actually uh, away from criticality, deep into one phase, yeah, it actually the the dynamics of the uh, of the memories that are already stored in the brain kind of wins over, so the information cannot get through. On the other hand, when it's on the other side of this phase transition, actually nothing can be stored. The, me- the brain in this particular model acts more like a like a, a you know random machine, yeah. So it's actually learning learning noise, yeah. The, the, the dynamics is noise, and only at this spe- specific point allows us to store the new memory in the presence of other memories in the in the network. So that, that, that you know, that is uh, maybe to give you a bit of context. You know, there is ongoing, uh, uh, ongoing dispute uh, among uh, you know brain theorists. You know, uh, is brain the self-organizing critical system? So exactly, is brain somehow uh, able to act at this phase transition? Yeah. So find the phase transition and the dynamics of the networks. It happens at the phase transition, and then of course, so there's a lot of evidence that it does. There's other evidence that it doesn't. Yeah, but also the question that that always bothered me is 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 why would the brain do that? Yeah, because you know to to actually try to control your dynamics so tightly to be at the phase transition it requires a lot of energy. Yeah, so it better be damn useful. To waste this energy for something, yeah, that that's you know evolutionarily u- useful, yeah. So that's that that's what we exactly. This was the the question we tried to answer: why the brain would want to be at the uh, at the critical point, and uh, w- what is the advantage in terms of memory formation and memory storage for it to be at this critical point? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So. Um... So you say that energy expenditure is high, so there has to be some net value. Uh, either the memorization is faster, easier, longer, whatever the case may be. Um, but I always wonder, Mikhail, you know, so, I mean, I don't know anything about this, but suppose I see a new automobile when I go out today. Would I sort of store it in, you know, some place where I can have a context for automobiles as sort of an added, added, you know, sort of a sub point in a set that I already be already stored? Or do I store it as a separate piece of information? The latter, I would imagine, is highly inefficient. Mm-hmm. And so the brain has to have some sort of a categorization, uh, prioritization mechanism that it has to put the the new piece of information, the right bucket, so that the the cost of storage, I would imagine, is lower, right? Yeah. So I, I was not even talking about the maybe uh, energy cost of storage itself, but you know, if we assume that brain has to control very tightly its parameters to be able to be at the 
critical point, yeah, that, that costs energy. Yeah? I mean, you, you have to have like feedback loops, yeah, and essentially, if, if you know, one parameter goes a bit of whack, I have to have a feedback loop that controls it back to go back near, near this critical state, whatever it is. But answering your question is actually a great question, I think. Um, yeah, you know, so how I would imagine it happens that first, you know, when you're seeing the automobile right now, yeah, First, you probably store it, you know, as this, you know, the, the, the memory of the moment is a separate memory, exactly. But then very possibly during sleep, this is what I meant by the contextualizing it, yeah? Mm -hmm. You know, somehow this memory is being compared to thousand other memories that you have available. And that's exactly when the, when the correlation happens. Hey, I saw something with four wheels before. Yeah, I, I saw it going, you know, 50, 60, whatever miles per hour. It feels like an autom automobile, so maybe it is out a different a different car that I didn't see before. So, you know, in some ways, this is how I, I think I, I, I see brain exactly consolidating this memory during sleep. Yeah, taken something that's very possibly out of context, because, again, the context very often cannot be created just on the spot because you know there's something else happening and I have to you know I cannot start thinking you know why we are talking today because you're asking me questions I have to be able to res uh, to respond to them to them yeah I cannot you know start remembering when you con con contacted me first time and things like that yeah I have otherwise this conversation will take 24 hours probably yeah but but then on the other hand you know later during sleep possibly or, or so-called quiet waking you know when I can reflect on things yeah I can start thinking, you know, oh, what did I say that was completely stupid? What could I answer better? You know, how, how, you know, I can start contextualizing this and putting in context of all other experiences that I had, yeah? So maybe it's, it's, it's like tagging memory, you know, this memory comes, it's untagged, but later during sleep, you can tag it or you can, you can delete it if it's not completely not important, you can tag it and classify it. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like during daytime, you go around taking Google photographs, you put all of that in the cloud. Yes. And at night, you, you look at them and you categorize them, you yes. delete some. Yes. Uh, yeah, you put them yes. in the right places so that sort of a more efficient storage. I yes, guess. I think it's a very nice analogy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so I want to touch on, uh, I don't quite understand it, uh, Mikhail. So what do you mean by criticality? Uh, what do you mean by the sort of the critical point uh, that the brain is on? Yes. So you know, let's actually look at the non-brain example. You know, what what is what what can be con so what what is a phase transition and and what do we mean uh, by critical point? You know, so the simplest phase transition every one of us has experienced, for example, uh, is when uh, ice melts into water. Yeah? So we have a transition between solid and the liquid. Yeah, and this is so-called uh, first order phase transition. Yeah, and uh, uh, so this is what we mean by phase transition. Of course, those uh, phase transition could be way more complicated. They don't have to be first order. They, they can be any order. It depends on the, you know, mathematical, ma you know, how the, some mathematical quantities behave. But generally we divide them into first order and higher order. And this higher order we call second order phase transition. So we kind of lump all the higher order phase transition and call them second order. And now it can happen that the, for the higher order phase transitions, the transitions of some, uh, of some uh, variables is, uh, is, 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 is continuous. So there can be a point 
where essentially phases coexist. Yeah, so you can have different, you, you know, you're not really in one, you're kind of in between the phases, you're sitting between phases. That, that in reality, it's hard to realize with, 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 the, uh, with the, you know, the, the example I gave you, the transition from ice to liquid. Yeah, if you look at the, the molecules, it's all, they are all frozen and form a solid or they form a liquid. Yeah, they, they start moving with respect to each other. In this higher order phase transition, there, there is like the place where the phases can coexist. Yeah, and exactly this point of transition between the phases we, we, we call critical point. And then this critical point has very specific uh, uh, physical or mathematical features. So there, there are so-called critical uh, exponents, yeah, that that uh, that scale in a very specific way, and it's very universal. So if if in, ra in re really there is a brain has a phase transition, the scaling of this exponent will be the same as in any other system that exhibits that's a completely non-living system that exhibits give it a second order phase transition, yeah? So it, it gives us, it is a very powerful notion because it, it allows us to kind of unify theory and to better understand how the things really behave, yeah? Uh, and uh, so again, going back, so the, the, the by critical point, we, we mean this is the point where the, the two phases coexist. So, so you're saying, so some sort of a phase transition is happening to sort of fully encapsulate the information. Um, yes. and it's, again, that's a, that's a hypothesis, let's make sure. It's a hypothesis, but um, it is not a simple transition. As you say, it's a higher order um, phase transition. Uh, but by uh, higher order, we just mean that there's some mathematical aspects of it that make it higher order. So, you know, there, there's a very good definition. It, it, it relates to the to the continuity of uh, order parameters. So, so so what's the intuition, Mikhail, from a physics perspective? Uh, why is this advantages for the brain to be at the critical point, going through or, or being able to do a phase transition during memorization? So, for example, what happens? One of one I told you about those what we call critical exponents. That, that have very specific scaling. So one thing that, for example, happens at the at the at the, uh, phase transition at the critical point, that the spatial correlations go to infinity. So think about this: I have a huge network, and I and I apply a new information to the network. So it's a perturbation. I, I you know I take uh, some small set of neurons and I perturb them. Yeah. And now the question is: How will the rest of the network respond? Yeah. And it turns out that at the phase transition, the response will be maximal in a way it will spread the farthest in the network. If you are not at this uh, critical point, yeah, this relatively small perturbation will result in very small network response. So now if you think about this perturbation being a memory, even network doesn't respond to this perturbation, there's no memory, there's nothing to remember, yeah, because there's nothing happened, yeah. Whereas if the small perturbation can uh, can spread throughout the network, it will have much bigger effect on the network dynamics and because of this on the network connectivity, because we get, again, we are very closely relating network dynamics, so the, the patterns of firing neurons with the rewiring, with the actual rewiring of the network connections. 
So it's sort of an amplification effect. Yes. Um, In this case, yes. Yeah. Um, but um, so so this this is one way you can increase the sort of the uh, the intensity of the um, of the signal. Um, alternately, you could, I guess, um, pump it up somehow. So is phase transition is sort of a energy efficient way to amplify? Is is that the way to think about it or no? You know, so, so I just gave you one example of what happened. You, you, you can call it amplification. I wouldn't exactly probably call it amplification because I, I kind of try to simplify it of, of what happens, yeah? And also remember that, that that's, it's very hard to amplify, you know, if you're storing one memory, maybe it's kind of easy, you know, if you know what you're exactly storing, you can amplify it. But now think about day worth of memories and you have to actually set the network in a state where it somehow auto amplifies the memories, yeah? Auto amplifies those very different experiences. And it becomes less trivial to do it through some kind of, you know, real, real feedback loop. And again, this is just one. I, I just hone in one on one aspect of the of this critical point, but there there are others. You know, like the time correlations also uh, go to infinity and 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 things like that. Yeah. So there there are other aspects of it that makes it easier for memories to format the criticality, which cannot be captured just by you know uh, relatively simple gain control uh, in 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 the in the network. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, um, this is probably one reason that we haven't been very successful mechanistically, uh, you know, sort of replicating the brain's function in silicon, mm -hmm. um, because I think uh, we are missing out <laughs> some fundamental aspects of how the brain works. Um, so, so I want to go into another paper you have, resonance and sub-threshold oscillatory drive organizes activity and optimizes learning in neural network. Uh, you say network oscillations across and within brain areas are critical for learning and performance of memory tasks. But a large amount of work has focused on the generation of neural oscillations, their effect on neuronal population spiking activity, and information encoding is less known. So, um, you know, we borrowed some stuff. Um, we thought how the brain <laughs> worked. Neural networks, artificial neural networks existed from 1960s. There's some fancy mathematics uh, last 15, 20 years. Nothing fundamentally has changed. Um, but uh, so, so neuronal oscillations. So, so, so what, what do you mean by neuronal oscillations here? You know, so if you look, uh, if you, for example, record from many, many cells, thousands of cells, or you, you, you recalled EEG or, or uh, uh, you know, scalp electrodes or uh, 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 you, you see that the activity, is, first of all, it's, it's, it's very noisy, but then you can start actually seeing that, uh, you know, there, there are periods of activity that are higher and then those, this period declines and there's again higher and it declines. Yeah, so if you look at, for example, and this is just one example, cumulative activity, it seems like it oscillates with some frequency. Yeah, so, so, so their periodic goes up and down, up and down. Yeah, uh, so that that could be one example. The other example, if you now look at individual cells, you start seeing that some groups of cells tend to get active together, whereas some some other not. Yeah, so 
this is what we refer to as uh, uh, synchronization. Yeah? So we have synchronization. So let's say you're recording from 100 cells and 30 of those cells fire together. And of course, they don't fire. But after some time, they fire together again. Yeah. So again, you have a period, periodic re repeatable activity pattern in the brain. That's what we call oscillations. Yeah. In, in this sense that there is a repeatable pattern, whether through just the number of increased number of cells firing or just by the identity of cells firing. Yeah. The, the, this, this pattern repeats itself. And because of this, it forms an oscillation. And so, so res resonance is, is a nice way to transmit information. So I, I think I've seen some, you know, sort of bacterial populations that, that seem to respond to some stimulus in, in a, some sort of resonance or, um, you know, kind of coordinated response fashion. Um, uh, would it be correct in thinking about neurons sort of individual entities as sort of coordinating information in some way? Yes, you, you know, that, that's a very nice example. It's a very nice comparison that you made. You know, you can, let's, you can treat neuron as an oscillator, yeah, because what it does, it fires action potentials and resets itself, starts charging again and fires action potential again, yeah? So it's clear it could be con considered as an oscillator. And now, you know, of course, there are different classes of oscillators, but it, turn, it, it, it turns out that uh, a neuron can have a preferred frequency at which it goes through the cycle of, you know, uh, charging, firing, resetting, and charging. You know, it, it, it's, it's again a very simple model, and we, we saw this if we take a spring, yeah, and we, we, we stretch the spring and we'll let it go, yeah, the spring will start oscillating exactly, yeah, so it will contract, then it will rebound and go again to the elongated state and then it will again contract and until, you know, the, 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 the friction takes away the, the energy of stretching, yeah, it will, it will oscillate back and forth. And it will os oscillate at very specific frequency, yeah? And actually, it's very, in some ways, very easy to make it oscillate at this particular frequency. It's much harder to make it oscillate at any other frequency because the spring wants to oscillate at this particular frequency, you know, based on the Hooke's law and, and we exactly we exactly understand. It. So neurons can be considered exactly like those springs, yeah, which for example, you know, the action potential is being emitted when the spring is being extended. Yeah. So there is some pre preferred frequency at which they will like to fire. And that's the resonant frequency. And now the the, the situation it's like in any mechanical system, you know, you, you can have a ball on the spring and you can drive this ball by external stimulus. And so it happens if you drive, if the frequency of this external stimulus matches the internal preferable frequency of the spring in a ball system, these oscillations can go out of whack. They can be huge, yeah, with a very small energy put on the external drive, yeah, we can have a huge oscillations. You know, in mechanical system, we actually usually dreading those. For example, in electrical system, if you would have, you know, a current going out of whack just because you 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 you, you drive it at the wrong uh, at the wrong uh, frequency, of course, it will burn the it will burn the circuit. Yeah, but what we show in this paper is actually this uh, this uh, resonance of so the preferable frequencies at which neuron 
like to act, yeah, maybe use as conduit to code the information in them. Yeah, so this may have some neuroscientists are going to cringe, uh, Mikhail, but I'm going to say this anyway. Uh, this may have some um, applications for neurodegenerative diseases, right? So if, if I think about this as a spring and I'm, I'm losing some participants in the system for whatever reasons, uh, that, that, that spring's frequency is going to be slightly different from what is expected, right? Is that is that the way to think about it, or you know, so um, you know, so so clearly you're you're right. You know, the, the changes in properties of neurons w w will will affect. You know, they can affect the function of the of the of the of the, of, the, of the network. You know, in a positive or negative way. You know, through through the diseases. And yes, of course, the you know when the properties of the network change in a wrong direction, you know, whether it's frequency or some other parameters, or for example, participants' neurons die, like, you know, Alzheimer or, 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 or other diseases. Yeah, this will definitely, you know, maybe the signal response of the network can be strengthened by driving it at, at the correct frequencies, yeah? So, that's a positive example, but of course you can immediately think about the negative example that if you if you drive too hard at those frequencies or you drive at the wrong frequencies, you can have all neurons going in synchrony and starting and starting bursting together. And we know that this is not a state we want to have, yeah, because that leads to epilepsy. Yeah? So so you know that, that that's why I had the pause when you asked me this question because. You know, it can easily go both ways. Yes, you can fix things, but you can easily screw up things too. And, and you know, I, I just wanted maybe to say that, you know, I, I know that everything that I'm saying, it, it sounds very vague because, you know, being a physicist, being brought up as a physicist, what, 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 what's really my dream is trying to pinpoint, you know, this kind of fundamental properties of the brain, which I believe they cannot be too complicated because otherwise our brains would fall apart. Yeah, our brains are <laughs> extremely complicated, you know, electrochemical devices, but they let us live for you know up to hundred years. Yeah, so in some ways, whatever they do, it's very very stable. That's why, you know, again, being you know brought up as a reductionist and and then trying to simplify things, I believe there's there's some underlying properties that has to be rel relatively simple to control by the brain that the brain doesn't go berserk of course we know that sometimes it does go berserk but but for for vast majority of us you know it, it works for the designed period of time and it does relatively well yeah so trying you know and and trying to pinpoint those properties is very difficult because of course if i go and talk to uh, any biologist you know they're going to tell me, and rightly so, you know, this is important, and this is important, and did you take this into consideration? What about this? You're talking about one class of cells, but you don't think about other class of cells. You talk about acetylcholine, but you don't talk about norepinephrine or dopamine. And, and you know, the picture explodes in being extremely complicated in two seconds. So the, the, the whole dream or, or the whole focus of the science is, can we simplify it? Can we find this underlying principles that makes the brain work and work as well as it does for relatively long periods of time. 
Yeah, I always felt, Miguel, that um, the brain is an electrochemical magnetic system. Uh, but so far, I would say most of our focus has been on the chemical aspects uh, to try to change it, control it, um, cure it. Uh, but there is a lot uh, in the electromagnetic arena, right? That yeah, and, and in the dynamics, just in, in, you know, this electricity magnets is 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 is, is, a, is a derivative of what the neurons do, and you know, we, we clearly chemical, you know. The chemical uh, components are extremely important. Even, you know, through this example that we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, you know, acetylcholine is a chemical. It acts through chemical pathways on the neuron, but it changes dynamics of a single cell. It changes the activity pattern of the cell, which of course then changes the behavior of the network. And so they are clearly there is they are extremely tightly coupled. But the the hope is that somehow we can parse them or or or, or, or understand them in a more broader context than we do right now. Right, right. Yeah, so I want to finish up with one of your more recent paper, acetylcholine mediates dynamic switching between information coding schemes in neural networks. Uh, you say rate coding and phase coding are the two major coding modes seen in the brain. For these two modes, network dynamics must either have a wide distribution of frequencies for rate coding or a narrow one to achieve stability in phase, phase dynamics for phase coding. So, so could you explain what you mean by rate coding and phase coding? So, for example, right now, I'm seeing you on a white background, uh, and, and uh, you have this yellow question mark. <laughs> yes, so if, if, if I think in context of the rate coding, so, you know, I have some, there are cells in my brain that, that you know, can, uh, differentiate colors, yeah, so I, I can identify those colors. So let's say my, what I would call a yellow neuron, but by this means neuron that reacts to a yellow color, will higher, will fire at much elevated values, you know, frequency of spikes than all other neurons, because this is the color that dominates right now my, my, my field of view, yeah? So in, the, in this sense, what I'm saying, the neurons which are relevant for given information fire with higher frequencies. So the neurons that are irrelevant will not fire or fire with some low frequencies. The more relevant the neuron is, it will fire at higher and higher frequencies. And this is for, you know, that, that, it's a great coding scheme because brain can kind of realize, okay, yellow is something I have to concentrate on. Right now, color red is really not existent in, in, in the field of view. So we, we, you know, there's nothing that, there's no information here. So that's the frequency coding scheme. So essentially the strength of the stimulus is coded by the uh, spiking frequency of neurons. Uh, now, when we change to phase coding, the situation is different. So here, what, what we think is happening actually, the, the, the range of frequencies is, 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 is smaller, yeah? So there are more neurons firing at similar frequencies. So then, just by nature of it, the, the frequency is not, no longer a good way to code information because there's a lot more cells firing at similar frequencies. But now what becomes important is which cells goes first in terms of spike and which cells go after, yeah? So now we are coding in relative timings of spikes, yeah? So not any more frequency, but which cells go first. And, you know, you know, 
this is just a very loose example, but in this example, for example, the, the yellow cell, the cell responding to a yellow color, would fire first, yeah, then the cell responding to another color that's not so prominent in, the, in my visual scene, yeah? And uh, so those are very dramatically different ways of coding information, yeah? And uh, in reality, we know that the brain does both, yeah? So the brain does the frequency, so, you know, for example, you know, if, if I look at my motor cortex and now I am moving my hand and, of course, neurons that control movement of my hand are now firing at much higher frequencies just to drive the muscles that, that move the hand. But we know, and exactly the, 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 the oscillations that you asked me before is, 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 is one example, we know that neurons do synchronize, so they, by, and when they synchronize, they keep these phases constant, yeah? So there, there are cells that actually we believe code information by this phase phase aspect of it. So who goes first? Yeah, and uh, this is especially important if you if you look at what what we think happens when we are strengthening the network connectivity, is that this timing at which neurons fire is extremely important from uh, from point of view of rewiring of those connections or strengthening or weakening of those connections. So timing has to play a really important role. So, so this is a kind of a hypothesis, you know, which, I, I, you know, if it ever turns out to be right, I would be extremely happy and extremely proud of myself. Um, that, that what, at, and again, at the Holling, in, in our models, at the Holling facilitates this, yeah, is that brain during the waking are more prone to coding with frequency which makes perfect sense, again, because I, I, I get bombarded by the stimulus from, from the outside, so the neurons respond to the stimulus in terms of frequency of firing, but then during sleep, and, and there are ex experimental recordings showing this, um, there, there, there are these oscillations which become very prominent, which again, oscillation is the hallmark of synchronization, so and synchronization is a hallmark of this phase coding. So the, it, it seems that the brain may undergo switch from uh, from this frequency uh, coding during the day, uh, during waking behavior, to the to the uh, phase coding during the uh, the evening. And again, I just want to stress it's not a zero one switch. We know there is both phase and frequency coding during the waking behavior. And I'm sure they're both during sleep too, but just the bias between the two may be shifting due to at the whole in actual. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. Um, so, I mean, we have multiple needs. So uh, rewinding time back to 50,000 years, uh, we had some tactical needs. We needed to find that leopard or the lion, you know, hiding behind the bush. Um, there was very specific, quick information that we needed. Uh, perhaps that's weight coding. Uh, but then um, we also need to sort of memorize, you know, the landscape, um, understand the clan structure and so on. That is, that is more context-rich uh, information that requires a lot more information. You know, so it's, it's funny you say that because one of the criticism of rate coding that rate is coding in some ways is much slower than the phase coding and you know because if brain is really is going to base something on the rate you have to be able to calculate rate so what do you need to calculate rate you need many spikes or at least more than one you cannot calculate the rate of anything based on one event 
Yeah. So in, in this way, the brain has to wait for some time to see that the neuron is actually spiking faster than the other neurons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you think about face coding, yeah, you are looking at the timing of maybe individual events, which can happen like milliseconds apart. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I completely uh, understand what you said, but it, actually, it could be just the reverse. It could be yeah. the reverse because motion motion becomes quite important, mm -hmm. and you need that temporal sort of yes. uh, firing sequence. Yes. Uh, to recognize motion. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And changes generally changes. Yeah. So you need sequence to get to get to changes also. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Mikhail. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you. It was very nice, very nice to meet you and very nice to talk to you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.